let's get going. We are going to finish up this week talking about Hanukkah. Hanukkah, okay? It's hard to say. I've, st- I've been working on it, so I think I've gotten a little bit better. But, but we have been talking about over the last couple of weeks, we've gone through all the feasts. We talked about Purim, um, and we've talked about Hanukkah, and we broke it into three weeks. And, and it was the best way I could figure out how to explain it without taking like three hours to do it all in one shot. Is the first week that we looked at this, we looked at what happened and where it comes from. Because in the Western world, we assume that Hanukkah is the Jewish version of Christmas. We just, we think, oh, you know, they can't celebrate Santa, so therefore they do this. And they certainly aren't going to celebrate the birth of Christ. Most definitely not. So that is what they do. And as you saw, that this is, again, a, a celebration of survival for the Jews. And I cannot stress that enough. Everything that they've done really is some sort of celebration of their existence of being on the planet. Because time and time again, somebody has risen up and attempted to wipe them out. And it is only the hand of God that has kept that from happening. God always promised that there would be a remnant of them left. And so he has kept that promise to this day. The most miraculous thing that ever happened, this has never happened in the history of a world where a people was dispersed and then comes back into existence, into their land as a nation once again. And I'm talking about 1947 when, when Israel comes back into existence as a nation. You're talking, they, they disperse in what, 70 AD? I mean, it was right around that time when they, they were sent out I mean, you're talking nearly 2,000 years. That doesn't just happen. There's no other explanation outside of God. But what caused it, what allowed that to take place was once again, somebody rising up and trying to wipe out the Jews. We see it with Purim. We saw it with Hanukkah. So we looked at what happened and how Antiochus Epiphanes rises up as the leader. He takes one of the sections after Alexander the Great dies. He takes over the section. He goes and checks Egypt. He goes on three different occasions. On his way back, the Jews started, basically had heard a rumor that he had died. He gets ticked off. He attempts to wipe them out. He changes. He does what's called the abomination of desolation. And we looked at all of this and then how, how the uh, Harmonians and the, the, the Maccabees were Justin Maccabeus. So he was the one that raised up. He's the hammer. He goes and attacks him. And that family was really the ones that brought this through. And the fact that they got to rededicate the temple. Because if you remember, Hanukkah means to dedicate. It's dedication. The Festival of Lights, as we know it, is based off the story of where there was uh, oil enough for one day to put in the lamp. But it lasted for eight days because that's how long it would take to make more. Now, there is no historical uh, proof of this. It is later Jewish tradition, but that's where it comes from. And so the point of Hanukkah is dedication. And I'm going to show you today what that means and how that's used and what that has to do with the end times. Because if you've been around on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about that. The whole feast thing is talking about that. Jesus returned. And what Hanukkah has to do with any of that. So we looked at it from a historical perspective. Then last week we jumped in the book of Daniel. Because every bit of that was written down 400 years in advance. Now I know it's a little hard to go from one week to the next and put the pieces together. I couldn't think of a better way to do it. But but essentially it's like when you look at that, of what Daniel prophesied and what happened, it is stunningly accurate. Like without exception, everything down to the number of days that this thing would take place until the rededication of the temple. That is why scholars do not believe that Daniel was written down 400 years before because it happened so accurately. They think it had to be written down after the fact. The whole event takes takes place in the silent period between the Old Testament and the New Testament before Jesus arrives on the scene. So you've got a gap of time in there. 
And what I want you to see is that Hanukkah is dedication and that God works in patterns. God is not mysterious. He does not work in mysterious ways. He works in predictable patterns because he is who he says he is. If his word says it, then you can believe it. If God says it, then you can believe it. And you need to leave it at that. In fact, Janet brought up a quote by Kenneth Hagin. Some of you guys know who he is, some of you don't. He, he was the founder of the school that I went to. But he says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That was it. And he, he lived his life like that. And so let's look at Isaiah chapter 46. We read this last week starting in verse 10. It says, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Why does he say this? Because he created time. He knows the beginning from the end. He can see both sides of it. You guys are, and myself included, are inside the confines of time. God is not. But then Ecclesiastes chapter 1 Verse 9, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Now, I bet you knew that part of it. There's nothing new under the sun. You hear that quoted by lots of people all over the place, right? Most of them don't realize they're quoting scripture when they say that. They may not do it anymore if they knew it was out of the Bible. But what is he saying? That which has been is what will be. And that which is done is what will be done. He's saying there are patterns that we can watch. If we follow the patterns that God has laid out, then he is predictable. I mean, with all these people that are claiming that, you know, the, the September 23rd, the rapture was going to happen and all this other nonsense, they're like, well, we just don't know. Yeah, you're right. We don't know specifically the day, but we can watch the patterns and it tells us when we should be looking up and being prepared. So what does this have to do with this? Is what I'm saying here is that Hanukkah has happened before and it'll happen again. Not the celebration of Hanukkah, but the event of Hanukkah. Because we watched it in Esther. We watched it in uh, 160 A.D. We watched it in World War II. Same pattern. And there's other times that you could go back and say, well, look, there was another one. I mean, those are just the ones that are the most famous. And so there's a core principle in Hanukkah is that it is the dedication. And the number eight has a lot to do with Hanukkah. And I'm going to show you this because eight is the number of rebirth, the rededication, if you will. So Hanukkah, when we look at this, when we get into the Hebrew from Shimona, which means plumpness, in Greek it's shaman, which means plenteous, it means to superabound. Eight is always a new start. The Shabbat day was the seventh day, and then day one was the eighth day, but it started, you've got this new beginning. So every seventh day they had this day of, of setting aside from, the God, from God, or for God, excuse me, not from God, that would be really bad, but for God they would set this day aside, and then it would start all over again. You had the, the Jubilee cycles that would start. You have all these things that God laid out in these patterns. And so in Revelation, you watch this completion of what some are going to say, and I think it makes some sense, a 7,000-year plan of God. You know how a day is into 1,000 years and 1,000 years to the day, that you have a 6,000-year reign of God up to that point, and then you have the 1,000-year millennial reign. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights um, and, and a little bit in here as well. And then you have the new heaven and the new earth. We are in the year 5778, I think, or 5887. I mix them up. Same numbers, maybe the wrong order. Right in that range, according to the Hebrew calendar. If that is accurate. We don't know that it is 100% accurate. But let's just assume that it is. If that's the case and these thousand-year patterns are, are, are accurate, then we got you know around a couple hundred years left. And most people are like, that's not possible. There's no way, with everything that's happening today, there's no way God's not coming back within 200 years. There's no way it's going to take that long. Tell that to every other person since Jesus went home because they said the exact same thing. So we're in the same boat. Our things 
crazier today than they were yesterday? You bet. That's exactly what it said would happen. But that doesn't mean it's going to be tomorrow or October 21st, according to the guy that predicted it on the 23rd. Got his math wrong, forgot to carry the one. It's October 21st. So y'all go crazy. It'll be a fun month. Anyway, I'm kidding. Don't take me seriously. Now, when we look at, as we begin to pick up on these patterns, I want you to see something here. In Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21, Enoch is what this is talking about. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, the name Enoch means to dedicate, to train up, things like that. Enoch never died. He was translated into heaven, what we would call raptured into heaven. He was taken away. Happened to two guys, Enoch and Elijah. Those are the only two. Everybody else died. These two never died. They were taken to God. His name means to dedicate or to train up. He is a key player in the end times because it is in the days of Noah will be when the Son of Man returns, as it was in the days of Noah. You go back to the days of Noah, that is when Enoch was around. Genesis 5 gives the whole narrative of all the people who begot this guy to begot that guy and all of that. Enoch was prophesying that God was going to flood the world. He was telling them, and of course they were not listening. But he walked with God. He was a man after God's own heart, no doubt about it. That is why he was translated when he was. And so when we watch this idea of dedication, that is the idea of Hanukkah. It's the rededication of the temple. Eight days is always the biblical pattern of dedication, and I want to show you this, okay? This eight number. 1500 B.C. thereabout is about the time of Moses, all right? In Exodus 22, it says in verse 29, it says, You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, that would be wine. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep, it will be... Uh, with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. How long were they with their mother? Seventh day. What happens on the eighth day? It belonged to God. At that moment, it was now God's. Now, these are patterns that we could pick up on, but what's another thing that God told Moses that they did when a baby was born? What were they supposed to do on the eighth day? Circumcise the child. What happened when that child became circumcised? He is now underneath the Mosaic Covenant, becoming one with God. They are now the people of God. Before that, they weren't. They had to be circumcised. And it was on the eighth day. The eighth day is when something goes back to God. Now, I want to show you the tabernacle here. You can kind of see, I know the picture's a little fuzzy, but look at this. you got the tabernacle. This is what Moses built. He built it off the design that God had shown him. So Moses saw into heaven and saw this tabernacle. You've got the east gate here. You've got the outer court. You get inside there. You've got the holy place and the most holy place. Inside of the most holy place was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. They traveled with fire by night and a cloud by day. That was the presence of God getting up and moving. And I know you guys all recognize these letters here, right? You probably already read them um, because we are scholars in Hebrew languages, right? That is the word Hanukkah. I'm trying. When we look at this, what's interesting here is in the first letter is the, uh, I'm going to say Chet, but it's like Chet, something like that. That number represents the number eight. The first letter in Hanukkah represents the number eight. Now, Numbers chapter 7 and verse 88. It says, Now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it and he consecrated it. 
and all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Now, that was verse 1. Drop down to verse 88. And all the oxen for the sacrifice of peace offerings were 24 bulls, uh, the rams 60, the male goats 60, and the lambs in their first year 60. This was the what? The dedication offering for the uh, altar when it was anointed. What is Moses doing? He is Hanukkahing the tabernacle. He is dedicating it and all the things to the Lord. He Hanukkahed it. That is not a proper word. I just made it up. I can do that. I do it in Scrabble too. So he anointed it and he Hanukkahed it. This is what he, you guys watch these patterns. Now, Leviticus chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. And it came to pass on the eighth day, right? Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting, which is the thing I showed you, and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So, what's happening? What day was it? The eighth day. That's significant. What they're doing here is this is the institution of the high priest, the Aaronic priesthood. Only from that line can the high priest come. Other people who were just Levites could be priests, but not the high priest. And this is where they are dedicating this. What are they doing? They're Hanukkahing this event. It's dedication. And what happens on this day? The glory of the Lord fell. The fire consumed the sacrifice and the glory of the Lord fell. We got King David. King David's father was Jesse. How many sons did Jesse have? Eight. David was the eighth. Samuel shows up looking for a king, goes through all seven, can't find him. The eighth one's off taking care of the sheep. At that moment, when he pours that oil on him, what did he do? He dedicated the eighth son to the Lord for the Lord's work. And David becomes a man after God's own heart. You guys picking up these patterns, there's this, this idea of Hanukkah is not just a celebration, it is a dedication. That is where the word comes from. We want to make it into a, a, just a simple holiday, but it's so much more than that. Second Peter, we'll get in the New Testament, chapter 2, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into charms of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, who was one of eight people a preacher of righteousness, but bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, we've talked about this on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago, got into some of the stuff that's going on here dealing with Revelation, but Noah was one of eight people. Noah was dedicated to God. He was the precursor to bring on the new worlds. You have the dedication of Noah and the new beginnings. You guys, I mean, you guys picking up this eight pattern, this Hanukkah pattern. Let me show you something else. This one kind of blew my mind a little bit. Let me show you this thing. This here, you got the name Jesus. This is how you spell Jesus in Greek. I, you knew that, though, didn't you? <laughs> right? Okay. All right? Now, when we look at this and we put these letters here, all of, just like in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, all of these letters have a number associated with them. So the numbers for these are 10, 8, 270, 40, 200. You want to guess what that number is if you added all those together? Take a wild stab in the dark. Math whizzes here. All right. It's 888. I'm sure that's a coincidence. Right? Got to be. I mean, again, we're just picking on what was Jesus? He was the new beginning of the world. He was, it was the blood of his, uh, of his death that brings on the new covenant, the new dedication. What becomes the temple? 
It's no longer made with hands. We do. You guys seeing how all of these patterns are there? Now, to get where we're going, let's look at John chapter 10. This is kind of the, the centerfold of what we're doing here today. John chapter 10 and verse 22. Now it was the Feast of Dedication. What is that known as? Hanukkah. Okay? So it is Hanukkah right now. It's in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And then he goes on to kind of explain them some stuff. And he later says, I am the light of the world. I mean, you guys kind of know how the story goes. But I want to show you. Let's look at the temple. It's a little bit different than the tabernacle. You have the temple here. And often you have uh, Solomon's porch. In fact, go to, go to the next one. This is Herod's temple. It was built by Herod I. This is basically what Solomon's porch looks like. I mean, it's, it's quite a thing. You can't tell. Now, this is not, this thing doesn't exist anymore. But this is a, a, a model of it. But this is all like you can just walk right through that. You can walk right through this stuff. And out to the east here, you have the Mount of Olives. It's facing east. So it's wintertime, so there's probably some snow on the ground and things like that. And, and so it's Hanukkah. And the people are wanting to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that you are, that we're waiting for? Now, here, what's not shown here, you can't see. Um, they have these big menorahs, these 70-foot menorahs that are, are not on this model, but they are on some of the others, and they would light those um, because it was, again, uh, the festival lights. Those are the things that Jesus pointed at and said, I am the light of the world. And remember that that light has to exist, but they cannot use it for any purpose. It has to just be there. And so in this moment, he tells them the Messiah. Now, what I want you to remember is that this is on Hanukkah. They are on Solomon's porch, so they'd be facing the east. And off to the east is the Mount of Olives. That is significant, and you're going to see why here in a moment. So he tells them this is the Messiah. Now, we saw a minute ago Moses in the tabernacle was Hanukkah and dedicated at around 1500 B.C. We're going to fast forward to 1000 B.C. to about the time of Solomon's temple. Now let's watch what happens here. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. What does, this, what does this look like? It looks like what we just read about Moses, right? The fire comes down, consumes the, the sacrifice, and the priest could not even enter because the glory of the Lord, the presence of Almighty God, was so strong they could not enter in the house. We saw the exact same thing for roughly 500 years prior to this. What's going on here? They are Hanukkahing the temple. They are dedicating it to the Lord. So just like in, the, in, in Exodus 500 years earlier, we watch this here. Now watch what verse uh, 8 says. At the time Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, and a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. On the eighth day they hanukkah it. They dedicated it. And we watch that same predictable pattern, how God did it. He consumes it, and the glory of the Lord was there. Now we're going to move to about 700 B.C. to get to King Ahaz. Now, he was a bonehead. A lot of the kings were uh, for, for the nation of Israel, but this guy was not smart. But watch what this happens. 2 Chronicles chapter 8, 28, excuse me. We're going to start in verse 22. It says, Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord, that is that King Ahaz. Notice how it says, that is that King Ahaz. In other words, they knew who he was. 
He's the idiot. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the king of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God. He cut in pieces the articles of the house of God. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem and in every single city of Judah. He made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his father. This is that King Ahaz. You see, what's happening is they're in Jerusalem. This is so we're in the southern kingdom. They've already been divided at this point. We're in the southern kingdom. And he looks and says, you know what? I mean, all these people that are attacking us seem to be having good luck. It's got to be their gods that are doing this. I got a great idea. Let's sacrifice to them. That'll solve the problem. Then the gods will leave us alone. Not exactly smart. When you've got the creator of the universe on your side, all you have to do is keep his commandments and his statutes. Then you will do well. No, he doubles down. And so he, what's he do? He goes into the temple. He cuts everything up that has to do with God and creates uh, images. He creates altars and they sacrifice to these false gods. How do you think God feels about that? Not real thrilled. And sure enough, he gets killed and defeated and, and all of that. But when we get to 2 Chronicles chapter 29, so we're going one chapter ahead, we're getting into a different king, King Hezekiah. We're going to start at verse 15. And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the word of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner parts of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out the debris that they found in the temple and took the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. And that's where they would burn this stuff. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord so they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days and on the 16th day of the first month they finish. Hezekiah cleans house. When it talks about they're cleansing the temple they don't simply mean they're grabbing some brooms and picking stuff up. That's part of it. But it's this cleansing. In other words it has to be purified. That only comes from sacrifice. They begin on the first day of the first month which is the month of Nisan. That is just prior to Passover. But what happens on the eighth day? They cleanse it and they rededicate it to the temple. It's, or excuse me, to the Lord. They rededicate it to the Lord. You've got these patterns here. They're rededicating the temple. Time and time again, we see this. All of this is done out of the fact that they have not done what they were supposed to do. Somebody comes in and attacks them, tries to wipe them out from existence, and yet God ultimately in his mercy intercedes on their behalf. And when they rededicate, they Hanukkah. It. That is what Hanukkah is. Now, I've showed you all of this to get to where we're going today. Because what I want you to see is this pattern of what happens and why they were asking Jesus the questions that they were asking him and the place that they were asking him. Because those are all important. In Ezekiel chapter 10, you says, in verse 4 it says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of brightness of the Lord's glory. So now let's look at this for a minute. Let's, we've got the temple here, all right? This is Solomon's temple. And we went through all of this a long time ago, and, and you can always go back and listen to those. But, but to give you a quick uh, uh, recap here, this is the outer courts. This is where they would sacrifice. This is a bronze altar. They got the brazen labor. They got several of them. This is the biggie. 
they would enter in. Once you got in here, everything was gold. And there they'd have the table of showbread, uh, the menorah, uh, the altar of incense. They had all of this stuff. Out here was kind of like the locker room for the priest, if you will. But once you went inside this place up here, you was the most holy place. This is where the high priest on one day a year could go into the, on the Day of Atonement, which just happened, by the way. Just happened. And so only on that day he would go in, he'd have to do an entire ritual, he'd have to cleanse himself before he could go in there and make propitiation for the entire nation. But here you have um, the mercy seat, which was the throne of God. And the presence of God was in there. That was where he held out, or he hung out. You had two cherubim right there. Now, what did we just read? It says the glory of the Lord. So what are we talking about? The tangible presence of God. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and pause over the threshold of the temple. So we'll go to the next one here. This is a depiction of the glory of the Lord. This raises up here during Ezekiel's day, and it doesn't stay in the holy place. It goes to the threshold of the temple, which would be that porch. In other words, it's exiting. The glory of God is leaving, and it pauses there. This is not a positive turn of events. It is leaving. God is leaving. Now, let's look at verse 18. It says, When the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight, when they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of God has exited the temple. These cherubim, that's where you get into the chariots and all this other stuff that's going on that people confuse. It gets up and it is leaving. But where is it going? To get there, chapter 11, verse 23, it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east of the city. Now I'm going to show you this temple here. I know it's a little difficult to see. Finding some of these pictures are very difficult to find. But it was in here, it goes up, it heads out over here, and it says it goes to the mountain on the east of the city. What is that mountain? The Mount of Olives. Okay, so the presence of God has exited the temple. It has left Jerusalem, if you will. It goes to the Mount of Olives. And then from there, it raises up and it departs. Now that's interesting. Because remember where Jesus was standing on Solomon's porch, which faced the east towards the Mount of Olives. So we see where the glory of the Lord departs, but where is the glory of the Lord going to return? Because remember, Jesus standing Solomon's porch is facing east towards the Mount of Olives. It's winter, so there'd be snow on the mountains. Ezekiel 43, verse 1. It says, Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces towards the east, same gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision, and I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Shebar, and I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces towards the east. Now let's go back to that picture, if we could. There we go. So the glory comes back down to the mountain, comes through the seat gate, and it goes back. It goes, enters back into the temple. This is talking about the return of Jesus. Okay? Now let's look at Zechariah chapter 14. So you can... Oh. Oh. 
Okay. I see. There you go. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. Did you guys all catch that? That's interesting. It all makes sense when you put it all together. Now look at Zechariah 14. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of the battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making it a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it towards the south. You guys picturing up the patterns of what happened. You watch the glory of the Lord leave and it's going to return. Now, let's look at Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 9, it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, and he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into the heaven. Now watch verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Are you picking up the patterns? Jesus leaves the Mount of Olives, just like Ezekiel said, just like it was, it was laid out ahead of time, he's re going to return in the exact same way. Now let's go back to John chapter 10, verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was wintered, and Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch, and the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They are on Solomon's porch, which means they are looking at what? The Mount of of olives, where the glory of the Lord will return. They were waiting. The problem was is that the glory of the Lord was standing right in front of them, and they missed it. That's where the Messiah was supposed to come. They're looking for the glory to fall in Jerusalem once again. Daniel chapter 2. This is where we start getting into some of the imagery here. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37 says, This is the dream. Now we tell the interpretation of it before the king. And this is dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and the dream that he had, he called to Daniel. You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven was given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything like iron that crushes that kingdom will break into pieces and crush all the others now if you've been a student of the bible of any sort of time you've seen a picture much like this because this is essentially a artist's rendition of what nebuchadnezzar saw and what daniel was talking about dealing with the different empires that come in to be and so how you look at this there's arguments on both sides of what they do but essentially that daniel is telling him is like you are the head of gold but there's going to become after you some are inferior some are very great and ultimately we talk about alexander the great but 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 he's saying these are going to happen so after nebuchadnezzar hears this stuff what does he do well he gets a brilliant idea let's look at chapter 3 verse 1 nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose weight was 60 cubits and his width 6 cubits. He, was, he set it up in the plains of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to do what? To dedicate 
of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So he makes an image of gold, and what does he do? He dedicates it. Now, what have we been saying dedication is? It's Hanukkah. Think about end times. You've got the false trinity of the Antichrist, the beast. You've got all these different things going on. What is the Antichrist going to do? He's going to go in and create an image. It's the abomination of desolation in the temple, just like it's been done in the past. And so here has been dedicated, or Hanukkah by this one. It's no different. They're going to Hanukkah it, and then people are going to scream. The Jews are going to freak out. But he's going to come in peace before that. Revelation chapter 13 says in verse 14, says, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which it was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. You guys watching the patterns? Okay. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, we read this before, the four winds of heaven were sitting up the, stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and there thus is said, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on his back four wings of a bird. It also had four heads. Kind of weird looking. And dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked, and by the roots, and there is in, the, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now take a look at this picture. This is kind of a, when you draw it literally, that's kind of what it looks like. Kind of weird, a little freaky, um, like something out of... Uh, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or Willy Wonka or something. You know, one of the things bringing chocolate, going down the chocolate fountain or the chocolate river. But, again, what do you see? You've got the, the horns, you've got the heads, you've got all these things going on. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood in the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. We're picking up again. These same patterns are repeating themselves. Let's look at Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and, two, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. It's Alexander the Great, who we're talking about. And I, as I was considering, suddenly a male goat from the west across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram, which had two horns, which I had seen beside, standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast, cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. Great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in his place of it, of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land, which is Israel. 
And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him and daily sacrifice were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. We read this last week. But you've got Alexander the Great who rises up. He dies. Four rulers come out of him. One becomes exceedingly great, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, he goes to the south, he goes to the east, and he goes after the glorious land, and then he sets up in the temple that which is abominable, the abomination of desolation. He sacrifices a pig on the altar. They set up a, 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 an image of Zeus in there. I mean, he did everything that he could, and he forbid them from being Jewish, essentially, from carrying out the Mosaic law. And Daniel chapter 8, verse 13 says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the certain one that was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, when the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Cleansed being dedicated, dedicating being Hanukkah, which is where we get this whole event taking place. And that's exactly what happened. It's from the time that the high priest was removed, Onias III, until the time that they come in and they rededicate the temple was exactly 2,300 days. This is why it is impossible that this was written down ahead of time, unless you've got the God who sees the beginning from the end. With Him, it's possible. Without Him, forget about it. And then in Daniel chapter 8, Verse 20, the ram which you saw, this is the explanation, having two horns, they are the kings of the Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And for the broken horn and the four that stood up in his place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive, and he shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity, but he shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means." Four people took over for Alexander the Great. When it says he shall destroy many in their prosperity, it says by his peace he shall destroy many in the King James Version. And that's exactly what took place. Because if you recall, they sent people in there and they, the Jews were already saying, hey, let's just make a covenant with the Greeks and let's, let's just do that. They were called Hellenistic Jews. And let's just make it. It'll be so much easier. And then he sent in people who promised them peace. And they accepted the peace. They're like, yeah, that sounds like a good thing. But through that peace, he ends up destroying many of that nation. And then in Daniel chapter 9, you get in verse 26, and it said, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war of desolations are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice of offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. See, this is talking about the time of the Messiah, but we watch this pattern already take place. He goes in there and makes a covenant of peace with them, and then breaks his promises, forbidding them to be Jewish, essentially. You see, that which has been will be again. This is the pattern that we're seeing, and this is what Hanukkah is talking about. 
is that this isn't just something that is to be celebrated. It is the dedication of the temple. You and I are the temple as the body of Christ. We should be, we were dedicated to the Lord on the day in which we received Christ as our Savior. And in that baptism is the sign of that dedication that has been made. But this pattern is going to repeat itself. What led to Hanukkah is going to repeat itself again with the Antichrist because he is going to come and he's going to create a covenant and things are going to seem good and it's going to be a time of peace. But then the abomination of desolation is going to take place. We saw that happen once, all right? But watch what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as through the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The great and terrible day of the Lord, the returning of the Messiah, will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. This is the Antichrist, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What did Antiochus do? He did that very thing. How do we know that this is going to happen again? I mean, these patterns are all well and good, but how do we know that has anything to do with the end times? We know the Antichrist is going to come. We know some of the different prophecies about what's going to take place. It's because of what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 4, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. This is where we are, guys. We're not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness, lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now watch. Therefore... When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Jesus says, now when you see the abomination of desolation take place, you got to go. Well, here's the problem. It's already taken place. You see, we have the mindset, and from a, we have a, a Western mindset of this prophecy. You got prophecy fulfillment. That's it. Something spoken, something's fulfilled. But watch the patterns. Hebrews, when the Hebrew looks at prophecy, they look at patterns. We know this event took place. They've already said that this was it. We read that in the book of Maccabees when we were reading through those things a couple of weeks ago. But here Jesus says, when this happens. That's telling them that this happened once, it's going to happen again. This is not far from the event that took place. 
Not far. I mean, you're within 200 years of when. That would be like, you know, why do we celebrate the 4th of July? We know why we celebrate the 4th of July. We are farther from the event that celebrates that day than the one that Jesus is talking about in this moment. Because they are within a 200-year period of that very event. He says, when you see this happen, it's just like Daniel said, it's time to go. You need to pack up and move on because things are about to get bad. I don't know where they're going to go as we're going through Revelation. It is not going to be a pretty sight for anybody remaining upon the earth. But these are the patterns. What does Hanukkah have to do with the end times? The very event that birthed the celebration of Hanukkah has been patterned all the way from the beginning to the end. And it is a part of the end times. This is not their alternative to Christmas. This is the celebration of their existence. And this has everything to do with the return of Christ. And thank God that he gives us these patterns that we can watch if we're diligent enough to actually be looking for them. That is why when there are signs in the sky, I'm going to bring them up because we need to be watching for them. When there are events that are taking place around the world that happen to jump out at me, I'm going to bring them up because we need to be watching for them. We don't worship the signs. We worship the giver of the signs. And thank God in his great mercy that when this all comes to pass, you and I will be sitting from the mezzanine watching this thing take place because this is not, it is a time of trouble which the earth has never seen. The earth has seen a lot of trouble. I can't even imagine what this is going to be like. But praise God for in, in, in his word, in the simple study of scripture that we can watch how he's going to do things. Amen. God's good. Now, I'm going to tell you this. We've got a couple of things. Next week, we're going to have a guest speaker in, a guy from Canada. We're bringing in a Can Canadian, okay? So um, I'll apologize in advance, and we'll make fun of his accent. So, um, but that's what we'll do. But he's a good friend of mine. He's going to be passing through, so he asked if, if he would mind. So we will receive an offering for him. But, um, but again, just, just so you know that. And then I want to tell you a little bit about the next series that we're going to get into because I think it's important. I think it, it, I, I think. Uh, the timing of this is impeccable based on what we're seeing in the world and the things that Janice has been teaching on Sunday mornings with, with healing and all of that stuff. We're going to get into a series that's going to be called The New Man. And I wrote this on my board over two years ago as I was laying out the things the Lord had put on my heart, not realizing it was going to be two years later that we get to it. I really thought it would be a couple months at most, but here we are. And so in laying all this up, what happens when we're born again? What is the change that takes place? And with that change, what responsibility and what authority is given to us as we walk on the earth? The problem is, is we know a lot about it, but we don't always know what the Bible says. We know what we've heard. And in this process, and I'm not even going to attempt to tell you how long this one's going to take, because I've been wrong with every other one. So you're just going to, we're going to do this till it's over. So <laughs> tough. But... But the bottom, the, we are going to kick over some sacred cows. We're, we're going to get into Scripture because and today, more than any other generation, we need to be walking in the power of God. And I think the reason we aren't is because, one, we don't know Scripture well enough. And two, I don't think we believe it. I think we think we believe it, but I don't think we truly believe the authority that God has given us and what takes place in that moment when we become Christ's child in the giving of our life to Him. We aren't just simply changed. We are born. It is a whole new start, and I'm excited to get into it. So I'm just giving you guys a, a little rundown of what's coming up here in the next couple of weeks so you guys are aware. As I said, I, we'll be out of town. We'll be down in Branson. So you all know how to get a hold of me. Um, if you guys feel so inclined that you, uh, you want to send Branson a check ahead of time because, uh, my goodness, I've, I've been looking at the bills of the tickets that we bought. I don't know how they sleep at night. Actually, I do on a big pile of money, so apparently. No, I'm just kidding, you guys. Uh, we're, we're excited to get out of there, but if you guys need anything, you know how to get a hold of us.